From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of The Capital Idea. My name is Michael Williams. I'm joined in studio again with my co-host, Mitch Whitus. Say hello, Mitch. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things, mainly this this whole Supreme Court decision recently about the Clean Air Act, West Virginia versus the EPA and so forth. But I wanted to ask you... Um, what have you been up to lately? Well, as we're recording this, Mike, we're just right after Independence Day. So I've had a nice celebration with family, got to see some nice fireworks shows. And I've also been on a little bit of a crusade this year. I get really tired of people saying happy 4th of July. I'm really wanting people to say happy Independence Absolutely. Day. Absolutely. So you're on just the crusade for the, this year is the one that well, got you on board? I, I mean, there's no. I mean, I'm always correcting people like that, you know. Yeah, well, you're just more evolved than I am <laughs> in this topic, but for some reason this year it's really been bothering me. Yeah. So that's been my mission this year, is because we don't go around saying Happy December 25th. Right. You know, you say Merry Christmas. Right. Right. And I think you should say Happy Independence Day. So that's what I've been up to is to change the hearts and minds of people all around. Why do you feel that strongly about it now? I mean, what is it that kind of triggered you to, you know, say I'm on a mission? Um. I mean, is it just all the kind of uh, strife we've seen, the conflict that people have about just political issues or whatever lately, um, and and that you're like, well, if we got more focused on the purpose of independence and the, the meaning of that, that achievement and the holiday, what it means? Maybe. Maybe that's part of it. There wasn't one thing this year where I, I looked at somebody's Facebook post and thought, oh, I can't believe this. They're wishing me happy 4th of July. <laughs> there wasn't one moment like that. But maybe it has something to do with our current turmoil. Yeah. And are, I you, are you against, uh, um, you know, grilling and hot dogs and fireworks and the whole, uh, you know, the, the, all the rituals we have around the Independence Day holiday? Do you, do you feel like that's that makes people miss the mark? No, I love that. I mean, I think any excuse to get friends and family together is always good. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a lot like Memorial Day in that regard, where people focus a lot on the long weekend and on the barbecuing and probably do miss the mark. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I think there's such a thing as holiday inflation. So, you know, people are more and more thinking about, do I get a day off? Yes. And and. It's funny because as a, as a private employer, uh, we had this discussion in my office and it, <laughs> it kind of felt weird because my, my employers were like, well, we get Juneteenth off, right? And I'm like, no, we don't. I didn't, I didn't, we haven't authorized that. It's not that I'm against Juneteenth. Actually, I actually think it's a great holiday and yeah, I do too. worth celebrating uh, in a big way, meaningful stuff. Um, but I hadn't, you know, when I put together our calendar for the year, I hadn't realized that the stock market would be closed and it was a, now a federal holiday. So I hadn't done the thinking on saying, okay, well, that's – because we oftentimes do follow the just that by default, which is problematic in itself. I don't want to just be saying, okay, you got a holiday because it's, it's what the government does and they get it off, so we all get it off. I have a problem with that. but um, And I think that's related to what you're talking about. People just yeah. sort of thinking not in terms of, well, what is this day of – you know, what does it mean? 
what does the 4th of July mean? What does Independence Day mean to me? And why should I celebrate it versus, you know, I don't have to go to work or whatever? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think, too, it's been a busy Supreme Court season, busier than, well, not busier than usual, just maybe more emotional for a lot of people than usual, a lot more high profile than we've seen in a very long time. And what I've seen actually on both sides this year, for people who agree, disagree with all these different cases, you know, people saying, oh, I just, this is such a great 4th of July in light of these recent decisions. Or people saying, you know what? This is horrible. This is horrible. <laughs> the know. end of independence or the end of freedom right. in America. You know, what's um, people saying really sincerely, what does America stand for anymore? You know, what a horrible year for Independence Day. Yeah. And I think when you actually get back to the root of Independence Day, that shouldn't be tied to specific Supreme Court decisions. No, but it can. I mean, obviously, if you have a court that says, makes a ruling that is congruent with what your view of what America stands for, whatever that might be, you know, that might be an error in a big way. And in, in, in my view, it probably is for most people because, I mean, I, w- I was about to go positive and say, this could be a really good thing if people are more involved and aware of the court and what they're deciding and how it impacts their own freedoms. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, I think, you know, some of the recent controversies that have happened around our government and uh, the political strife that we have could be turned into a positive thing where people are more engaged and understand, hopefully over time, have a better understanding of the role of government in their lives uh, and the proper role. But in one sense, I'm kind of negative because I think most people are pretty ignorant about the way that the government works and what the what the court's job is in the first place. And so they, and they don't have a proper standard in the first place. And that might be a, a good segue into this whole issue of the Clean Air Act and and the EPA and, and what the the most recent decision is. We're gonna we're gonna probably do a couple of podcasts at least on some of these support, Supreme Court decisions. And you know, just just to put it in context, we here uh, on this show are defending and championing individual rights uh, and the proper role of government, which is what we mean by capitalism. And so in championing capitalism, we're going to talk about you – know, people might wonder, well, what, is, what does that have to do with the Supreme Court decisions? And we're going to show you exactly why uh, or how. We're going to talk about this, this issue with regard to the specifics of this case, the EPA case, uh, but the, then also try to have a wider lens of how it impacts the, the general concept of rights and the role of the court and the role of Congress – how, what, what our government should be doing properly. So I think this is a good segue for that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a good segue into the Clean Air Act, which is our topic today. Yeah. So um, you've spent more time on this case than I have. Uh, I haven't actually read the decision, although very, very much aware of it. And I have a very, very positive uh, view of the decision, uh, much to um, some people's surprise. Um but why don't you explain a little bit of background about the Clean Air Act and how this decision came to the court's attention and and a little bit of background there. Yeah, it's there is a lot to the Clean Air Act background. There's a lot to the case. So for all the lawyers out there, I'm just going to give an overview. So 
don't write us angry messages if we missed one of the important precedents. Yeah, and I would say that generally. I mean, we, neither one of us are uh, attorneys. We're neither one of us are constitutional attorneys. <laughs> uh, we, I think, we both consider ourselves well-read and and interested in some of these opinions. And and certainly, I have spent some time reading some of the Supreme Court decisions, especially big ones over the years. But uh, yeah, we're not we're. We're a couple of guys wanting to influence our fellow citizens to think more clearly about rights and and freedom and the proper role of government. And in that context, we're going to make some comments about you know, the Supreme Court and some of these precedents and decisions that they've made. But you're right. The Clean Air Act has around, been around for, you know, what, what 50 years now? Yeah, even more. longer. Even longer. So essentially the Clean Air Act, it's actually the result of a number of different acts. But what most of us now call the Clean Air Act, it's from an act of Congress that was passed in 1970. And this idea of the Clean Air Act, it starts coming about because of some really terrible air pollution issues occurring across the United States. So in the late 60s, early 70s, President Johnson, President Nixon... They signed some of these bills into law that that we now collectively refer to as the Clean Air Act. But as I said, most people talk about that 1970 Congressional Act as the Clean Air Act. And what this 1970 Act does, it strengthens the authority of the federal government to enforce environmental quality standards. So it creates different things like the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, the National Emission Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants, and some other standards like that. So we have these standards in place for, like Mike said, over 50 years. Fast forward to 2015 during the Obama administration. The Obama administration and the EPA announce some new rules, particularly in regard to regulation of coal-fired power plants. So 2015, this case comes into being. It's called West Virginia versus the EPA, and it ends up being actually a number of different states join on to this, a number of different private corporations join on as plaintiffs in this case. So this starts back in 2015, starts slowly making its way to the Supreme Court, as these things often do. So a little bit more background, and this is from the current opinion issued by the Supreme Court on West Virginia versus EPA. But I thought this was a good overview of what the question before the court is. So this is just kind of outlining in this current opinion the lay of the land. Exactly. So what the court writes, they say, since the passage of the act, that'd be the Clean Air Act, 50 years ago, EPA has exercised this authority by setting performance standards based on measures that would reduce pollution by causing plants to operate more cleanly. So EPA basically for the past 50 years has been trying to get coal-fired power plants to be more clean. It's a good thing, right? Yeah, we want more clean coal. 
Although you know, trying to get trying to get you know, the EPA trying to get that to happen is an interesting question. But go ahead. Well, yes, another topic for many more podcasts. But getting back to what the Supreme Court writes in 2015, however, EPA issued a new rule concluding that the quote best system of emission reduction for existing coal-fired power plants included a requirement that such facilities reduce their own production of electricity or subsidize increased generation by natural gas, wind, or solar sources. The question before us is whether this broader conception of EPA's authority is within the power granted to it by the Clean Air Act. So they're basically saying that that uh, the EPA was potentially uh, expanding its role to say to a coal plow- coal powered fire plant, uh, coal fire power power plant, be able to say, well, the way you can comply and make cleaner air is to either reduce what you do entirely, or to subsidize your competitors. Well, subsidize other types of cleaner energy emission. Right. And so the question comes before the court, what did Congress actually authorize the EPA to do in the Clean Air Act? Right. And like I said, it's a complicated case. So the Trump administration comes into power, of course, after the Obama administration. The EPA actually starts rolling back some of these decision changes. And so the EPA, actually part of their argument is saying this case is moot to begin with because we've already rolled back these rules. So (laughs) there's no reason to even hear this case anymore. And that actually becomes part of the opinion, which is really interesting. Well, and and, and we got to go slow here. I mean, this is this is important from the standpoint of, you know, again, role of government and the rule of law. Right. Uh, You have you have a. Cabinet level department, the EPA, right, um, that answers to the executive branch of our government. But you have okay, Ob- the Obama administration comes in and says one thing, and then and this is what uh, an interesting thing that's happening more and more. And I think it's um, it's a move toward more and more authoritarianism. And and we have the Congress who basically has deferred to the these. Um, regulatory agencies and therefore giving more power to the executive branch. But then the executive branch that comes in, the next one that comes in and says, okay, well, we're going to undo what the last one did. And that's, you know, like what you were saying with regard to it started off, you know, what Obama wanted the EPA to be doing. And then all of a sudden Trump decides to undo that. Um, And that's an important point to me uh, is that where did the checks and balances come in and, and, and what, is the EPA really even part of the administration? Well, they are in one sense. They're appointed. You know, the, the department heads are appointed by the president, and the, all the bureaucrats under that department presumably answer to that political appointee, and therefore the president. But is that really what happens? And that's sort of we could do a whole uh, episode on the you know the bureaucratic state, or maybe the fourth branch of government, yes. know, the deep state, which you know some people think use that term and it's like, oh, you must be some kind of conspiracy theorist. And I, I don't think that's really true. I think it's I think it is a real thing. I think the bureaucratic state 
is a real thing. Now, people sometimes make the argument that it's necessary because we, we need to have non-political people in there, uh, per, more of a permanent bureaucracy that is going to last regardless of whether it's Republicans or Democrats or whoever. In, um, but they have a ton of power. And the question is, what is the root of that power? Is it proper? Is it properly executed? And, and that's why I think this is a, a really illustrative case and hopefully – uh, a good trend on the part of the the Supreme Court for actually looking through and saying, okay, what is the job of Congress? Are they doing their job? Um, but go ahead. I interrupted your train of thought. No, I think that was all good, Mike. And you said what I wanted to also talk about, which is the fourth branch of government. Based on recent events, I don't use the term deep state as much, <laughs> but I think- Yeah, you, you say recent events because of the whole Trump thing? Well, I think- a lot of conspiracy-minded people mean deep state, maybe to go into the Q, yeah. <laughs> crazy theories yeah. and things like that, which I don't think you mean when you're no, using No, 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 that's not all what I mean. I, and, I, and that's the problem. That's why I said is that that people use that term uh, as a – or people interpret that term as, well, you must be talking conspiracy theory. And I guess maybe because lots of people do. I don't think it's a conspiracy necessarily. I don't think the, – the, the, and I say necessarily, I, I don't think there's – there's any kind of massive coordination of all these different people trying to take over our government. I think it's partly what's happened because of the American citizens not really understanding their own role and therefore not holding their representatives, Congress, accountable. And therefore, those people just being part of the the you know uh, ongoing uh, deterioration, I would say – of people understanding what freedom is about and therefore having uh, cabinet level agencies and bureaucracies that really in my view shouldn't even exist um, have too much power. That's, that's the way I would explain it. Not any kind of conscious thing that's going on, but there being, you know, a power base of people who, who like and enjoy their power and their ongoing, not, not only ongoing economic benefit, but they're more, more particularly their their power over other people, uh, over long periods of time to to regulate the lives of Americans. Yeah, this permanent civil service. Yeah, and getting back to this Clean Air Act, question is, what did Congress give this permanent civil service the power to do? Right. And six to three decision, conservatives on the majority the liberal justices, and the minority. Chief Justice John Roberts writes the opinion that first, as I mentioned, this case is not moot, as the EPA was suggesting, because the Biden administration has stated the intention to still pursue similar policies as were discussed in 2015. With regard to this specific area, right? With regard to how these coal-fired power plants will be operated. So I wonder if uh, Justice Roberts would have had the same position if the Biden administration hadn't really indicated such, if they hadn't said, yeah, we we intend to to put the same kind of pressure on on coal-fired power plants. uh, if, if, If the Supreme Court would have said, no, we've got a wider opportunity to talk about that issue with regard to this deference. And you, know, you and I have talked about this before, uh, but there's, there's a number of Supreme Court cases over the, la- you know, over the last hundred years um, th- where the court is actually deferring 
hence the word deference, to some branch or some, I should say, uh, cabinet level branch, regulatory body of the executive branch um, and saying, well, they get it. They, they basically, Congress set it up so that way um, that branch of government can make their own rules and they become the judge and jury, their own little judicial department within their scope of their ever widening scope of power, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the you know the EPA in this case, or the Department of Labor, or the or the the SEC, or whatever it might be, they continue to ext- expand their power because of that deferral, meaning that the Supreme Court saying, well, we'll defer to that exec- that executive branch or that executive uh, agency because they must know better, and Congress Congress must have meant for them to have that kind of power, and we'll just let them ha- set up their own own judge and jury on some of these issues. And I think it's a, a really interesting thing as to whether this Supreme Court would look at it in a wider basis. I do think that, uh, especially Gorsuch, he's made you know uh, uh, lots of noise and writings about um, his distaste for the regulatory state. Um, but I wonder if, if, if uh, uh, Roberts would have actually had the same viewpoint in his opinion if, it, if uh, Biden hadn't actually had a similar policy to uh, Obama. Yeah, I, I don't know, but if I may, for a moment, take a moment of privilege and say, it's really great, particularly for these high-profile cases, if you get a chance, pull them up on the internet and read them if you can. Some of them are agonizingly long. They're torturous to read for the most part, but you really get to, for a few pages, get into these justices' heads of what they think on this case, the history of this case, and then you also get to see dissenting opinions. And if you want to be a smarter person and a more well-read person, just try it out. When and a better th- citizen, right? And a better citizen. Yeah. And when you hear on the news that one of these cases has been decided that maybe you disagree with or even if you agree with, pull it up and read through some of it. See what you think. So I don't know what John Roberts would have done if the Biden administration had said something else about coal-fired powered plants. But you can piece together some of John Roberts' thinkings if you actually go and read his opinions. And uh, I'd like to make that little pitch to uh, be an active, engaged citizen. And read some Supreme Court opinions. I couldn't agree with you more. I think I think it's worthwhile for people to do that, and I, I think that's part of what it means to be a citizen. Hopefully, the courts will get better at actually not making them so long, and and you know the opinions be so long, and and making it more addressable to the average citizen. I think that's that would be a good trend, and I also think that um, the idea of having your average American citizen look at a Supreme Court p- opinion and both the the affirmative and the dissenting opinions would be a move a very healthy move toward better citizenship and and more intellectualism uh, people yeah. I, I do think you know if we look at the last decade or so um, well especially the last four years I mean there has been a move toward people not really wanting to explore ideas 
you know, people people using slogans. And, you know, we've talked about tribalism before. People just saying, are you on my team? Are you on the other team? Versus saying, well, what are the actual ideas underneath this? You know, what what, what are you trying to say? And so uh, I think the anti-intellectualism that we've had uh, needs to be reversed. And that would be greatly helped by people understanding both the laws that are written by Congress as well as the opinions that are um, put down or brought down from the Supreme Court on those laws. Well, I agree completely. And I think often, even though I think most of us probably could not name all nine justices on the Supreme Court, when you hear from your side, going back to tribalism, we know that Elena Kagan is the liberal on the court. You know, we don't we don't like her if you're a conservative, right? Right, right. But if you actually go and read her opinions, yeah, you might not agree with her, but these are really intelligent, well thought out people. Every single person on that court. Well, huh. Mike shakes his head a little bit. <laughs> I don't know that I would agree with that. I think I, they're obviously well educated from today's standards. They've you know they've gone to most of them have gone to Ivy League schools and, and spent a lot of time thinking. But whether they're really uh, intellectual or whether they are partisan hacks is a question, at least in in the public's mind right now. Right, I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there who are saying, "Yeah, this six to three decision or that six to three decision this this court's been taken over by the uh, by the right wing, uh, by the conservatives, and they're just going to cram down a bunch of stuff." And that's partly true, um, but that's not to say that your advice. I mean, I, I do think you're right. You know, you, you, people should read these opinions and they should be looking at both sides. Uh, but the court has some work to do to to keep. Save, I want to say save, keep uh, its reputation of being the most uh, thoughtful, intellectual, objective branch of government. It still is, right? Oh, well, without a doubt, yes. But I think its visibility as an institution will continue to erode along with all of government. Because right now, just people view institutions with the distrust it yeah, so that's a me. whole other rabbit hole, and I want to, you know, I want to do two things. I want to come, you know, pull back this discussion to what's the relevance to, to free markets and capitalism, but I also I want to touch on, uh, you know, you sound kind of pessimistic about that being almost inevitable. It sounds like you. I am kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think we talk a lot about how do we protect the Supreme Court as an institution. You know, it's becoming too political, but I think that's an inevitable consequence, almost of where we're at as a society. I mean, everything is political these days, or people want to make it political, or it's tribalistic. Now, th- those are two different things, right? Saying it's political versus it's tribalistic, I think are two different kinds of statements. And you're, you sound like you're equivocating that, that they're, you know, it's kind of like the negative part of what's going on in our culture right now. I know that that absolutely can be true. And people make that association partly because politicians have given such a bad name to politics. Yeah. Um, but if you think of politics generically as, you know, that's that's a branch of philosophy, really. I mean, I, I you know, I, I sometimes like to summarize philosophy for people, and this is a whole other rabbit hole, but, but, you know, politics is just, you know, a branch of, you know, deeper thinking. How do, how do people get along with each other, right? That's the question. I mean, when you think about, uh, different branches of philosophy. Well, what is ethics? What is morality? Well, the, the whole question that has to do with morality and ethics is, what's the correct behavior for me? 
what should I do? What's the right answer for me, my behavior? What should I be doing? How with should my I life? live my yeah, life? Exactly. That's yeah. that's ethics. And I think of politics as sort of derivative of that is, well, the question is, how do I behave with regard to other people? Yeah. And in that sense, politics is a really good idea. You know, oh, that but, I agree with. But we have this sort of overlay of our cult, current culture. And like you said, it's it's now very tribal. Um of people thinking in terms of politics just being uh, really yucky stuff, you know, really ugliness. Well, what I meant was I think due to tribalism, you know, people are angry. A lot of people are losing faith in institutions. And because of that, they're falling into those quote unquote, I would say political, you know, Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal. Um, And people are using that to inform their worldview because it becomes us versus them and it feels really good when the other side gets bashed. That's what I meant by that. No, I agree with you. That's that's definitely the current culture and I think – but I I also don't think it's inevitable. We're a long ways down that path, but it's not – it's not terminal. Um, And that's partly what what this – podcast is about is actually trying to say you know we don't we don't have to think that way we could there's a better way to think about some of these issues and so hopefully uh we're we're adding some some value to that discussion in terms of how to think differently about it but back to the back to the uh, the issue the issue of the day the issue of the day this 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 whole issue of the supreme court making decisions about um uh an agency of our executive branch of our federal government making laws themselves, so to speak, their rules and regulations, and whether the Supreme Court should uphold those or if they should you know, push back and say, wait, is this the role of this agency or should Congress be doing its own job? Right. And in this case, the Clean Air Act case, West Virginia versus EPA, you read the opinion and – a lot of it comes back to this quote called best system of emission reduction. And that's what the EPA goes back to in this 2015 ruling. What is the best system of emission reduction? And the EPA is essentially saying we need to make rules in order to create the best version of reducing emissions. In a nutshell, What John Roberts says, writing for the majority, is that the best system of emission reduction to forcibly shift from coal power to alternative energy sources is not a power granted by Congress to the EPA. And I want to just share a brief little excerpt of Robert's actual opinion, because that's the best place to go, as I've been saying, when you want to know what they actually said, I'll just read what they actually said. (laughs) So what Robert says in part, capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. So in other words, actually going in, capping how much these coal-fired power plants can emit might be a way to fight global warming. It might actually be a good public policy. That's what Roberts is starting off saying. But he continues, but it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory 
and I, I'm trying to paraphrase here because there's, there's a lot to it, as you can imagine. But he goes on to say, a decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. So the question is not, is this good public policy or not? The question is, as Mike has been saying, does the Environmental Protection Agency have the authority to do what it is saying it has the authority to do? And the only place it can get that authority is from Congress. And Roberts is saying, no, Congress has not granted this authority to the EPA. And Roberts concludes by saying, the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is reversed. So, in other words, overturning a lower court's decision. And he goes on to say, and the cases are remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. So, that makes it official in that the EPA cannot do what it said it was going to do. Right. And we, I, I think we should all be cheering for this because it's a good, it's a very good thing to have the Supreme Court say, wait, uh, maybe this is good, maybe this is good or not good public policy, but it's got to follow the rule of law. And which means that Congress needs to do its job and be more specific with regard to what they're delegating their power to uh, the EPA or whatever agency it is. And, and, and this whole idea of authority, you know, you, you were just saying, Roberts is saying in the court by a th- six to three margin said, no, EPA, you don't have that authority. Congress didn't give it to you. And part of it is because in a correctly constructed government, the way the founders had it set up is that that authority ultimately comes from the people themselves. And those Congress people need to be accountable to the people. Right. So the people are, are, are you know, it, it is a a situation where if, if the if the American people really believe that this is how they should be governed by the F, the EPA or those such rules, then they will vote those kinds of congressmen in place to make those kinds of laws without this sort of hide behind the agency. I mean, this is what happens is that all these congressmen make laws that are vague enough and and allow such latitude and power. Really, it's delegating power um, improperly because, again, the American people are, are who has delegated power to their representatives, but they're delegating power that's way too, way too wide. And, um, and the Supreme Court saying, no, this is not constitutional because you don't, you're, you don't have that authority. Congress never gave it to you. And Congress needs to be more accountable for such laws. Yes. And if Congress is going to delegate that authority, it will specifically delegate that well, authority. That to would be you. the hope. Now, the, the other question comes in is, is it good policy in the first place? And do, do what should Congress make laws? What's the principle upon which Congress should yes. make laws? And that's part of why I love this case is because what Roberts is saying is that's not the question here. Right. The question is not whether this is a good public policy or not. Right. This is a constitutional question, right. which is, it, I believe, the role of the Supreme Court. Well, it, 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 but the Constitution has to be animated by some principle. And so ultimately that it does let, – let's say that they the, – the, uh, Congress had been much more specific with regard to 
the EPA or maybe had amended the EPA Act uh, to account for all this, I would call it hysteria over global warming. Uh, other people might say, wait, no, this is a real actual emergency and we need to do a lot about it and we, we need to have our Congress and our government act more quickly and more with more urgency. But however you come down on that, the, the Supreme Court does need to make a decision about are the laws themselves, no matter how specifically they're written by Congress, are they not only followed procedurally correct, correctly, but do they actually conform to, do they adhere to the mission, so to speak, of the Constitution? Which you know we can talk about at a later time or go into more in depth. Um, I, I do think it's uh, really important that this case is being looked at that way, and it sets you know it sets a tone. And, and again, I mentioned that Gorsuch has made noises. Uh, I think that uh, Justice Thomas has as well about rolling back at least some aspect of the welfare regulatory monstrosity that we have today, known as the a ABC agencies. And it's amazing how many Americans don't know how much power is out there in this gargantuan bureaucracy. That Congress may not have even delegated in right, the first exactly. place. Yeah. So, and, and some of the names, some of the big cases that, that, that I've uh, looked at before are the Chevron deference and the hour deference. These are similar examples of where um, the Supreme Court in the past said, no, we're, we're okay with the, the EPA or whatever agency it happened to be, the Department of Labor or uh, making their own rules and, and just you know having this wide scope of regulatory, meaning power over uh, companies and, and individuals throughout the country. And hopefully this is going to be a trend toward co the Supreme Court saying, no, those laws are not constitutional because they're not properly by form executed. And hopefully even more than that, I would say, is they'll, they'll take a look at, you know, did Congress have the proper interpretation of the Constitution in the first place when they wrote right. those laws? There's a lot to it. It's there like is. the inception of <laughs> the Supreme Court. Multiple but layers. There's Absolutely. multiple layers. But ultimately, the question before the court for this particular case was, did Congress delegate this authority to the EPA? Roberts Court says no. And going to this, you talked a little bit about the Chevron deference and I know we don't want to go too much into all these different legal doctrines, but what we might start hearing more about and what we have been hearing a little bit more about in the past several years is this concept of something called the major questions doctrine. And that has been something that's been evolving in the Supreme Court. And essentially, it says that when when claims of bureaucratic authority have a large or will have a large economic or political impact, the Supreme Court has started asserting more aggressively that Congress needs to have granted that authority. So more and more we're seeing less deference to the regulatory agencies and more of a push by the Supreme Court to ask that regulatory agency, where specifically were you granted the power to do that? It's still an ambiguous idea. It's an evolving idea. But I think particularly with the makeup of the court in, in this – the Roberts era, I guess, we will probably hear more about this, I think. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, and, and it's interesting because 
it, it sort of has to do with his idea of incrementalism in the first place and, and, and a focus on process and procedure versus outcome. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think it's good. It's a good trend on the part of Roberts. I do question about whether he has a judicial philosophy that really does understand what I think and this is tying it back to our our whole theme for the podcast here is you know tying it back to free markets, free people, uh, capitalism, the the only system that actually recognizes the rights of individuals um, universally, and whether he understands the purpose of the Constitution is that you know that the spirit, the mission statement of the Constitution is to protect individual rights. Um, whether they follow that process or not. Now, obviously, they need to follow a process. That's the whole point about having the rule of law. But is the rule of law, you know, if if Congress follows, you know, follows and does delegate Mm -hmm. to an agency, very specifically, clearly, would Roberts go, well, Congress delegated, so that's good. And and we could come up with even more monstrous things that that they would, that our, especially current Congress, uh, or, you know, say the Congresses in the last 30 or 40 years, might have come up with because of their, you know, their rationale for some kind of public good, but it would be totally antithetical to what the founders had in, di- in, in mind and what I ha- what I would have in mind in terms of the the principle, which is individual rights, the protection of individual rights. Yeah, uh, well, that's a good point. Then you know, I don't, of course, know what's in John Roberts' heart of hearts, but if we go back and read some of his opinions, maybe <laughs> we'll get a better idea. That's right. That's right. But I also want to say I, I forgot to mention this. The EPA is still around, um, despite the hysteria that we've been hearing, all, or at least that I've been hearing all around me. Coal-fired power plants are still being regulated. This decision did not vacate all regulation of power generation. This was specifically related to that rule that was proposed under the Obama administration in 2015. So this did not overthrow the EPA this was this did not go into broader questions of was the EPA a constitutional bureaucracy itself and I think there's a broader conversation we can have about that Mike you know over a course of 10 or 20 podcasts sure. but what's amazing to me is seeing all of the hysteria when actually it, at least in my opinion this the court's actions here, were fairly limited. Very mild. In that sense, you know, I'm of the opinion that most of these virtually, well, you've heard me say this before, and I think it's important that any listeners who are interested in what I believe is the proper uh, defense of capitalism realize that we should be getting rid of all regulation. There should be no such thing as regulation as a uh, as a concept under our law. There should absolutely be laws. And if the if, if Congress believes in order to protect individual rights. And certainly pollution can be uh, – polluters can violate rights. And, and that's proper to say the government needs to protect individual rights by keeping people from polluting. The question is that should be very well defined, what that means, um, and then make a law instead of some wide scope of what a, a bureaucrat can call pollution or what a wide scope of what a, a bureaucrat can – that kind of power. Um, so I agree with you. This is, this is, in my mind, like a tiny first step. It's no reason for the people who are very much fans of the EPA or all this regulatory um, uh, monstrosity that they have today. Again, my characterization, but uh, there's no reason for them to panic. It isn't going away tomorrow. 
it should. Uh, it should go away. Well, not tomorrow, but it should go away systematically over, over the course of time. But it's, it's a very small step and uh, hopefully the right direction for this court. Before we wrap up, I would be remiss if I did not just briefly state what the dissenters on the court said because I think that's important too. <laughs> we brought, uh, Maybe we disagree a little bit about the intellectualism of all of the court members, <laughs> but I think it's still important to say because this is part of getting over tribalism is at least understanding the other side's point. And Elena Kagan, who's considered one of the liberal members of the court, she writes the opinion of the three who dissented on this case. And what she says, I'll quote her directly. This is just a part of her dissent. It's much longer. Again, I encourage you to read it. But what she concludes by saying is, and let's say the obvious, the stakes here are high, yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court... In other words, the Supreme Court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. Respectfully, I dissent. I appreciate the respectfully, of course, that <laughs> that does put a nice little cherry on top. But what Kagan is saying here is that the court is essentially making public policy with this decision. And that's kind of an interesting way to look at the case. And I'm curious what you think about that, Mike. I'm, I'm glad we're going to add on this because I think that's a crucial thing. Ultimately, that that is the framework of our system. The, you know, the Supreme Court justices are, you know, quote, non-political um, in their appointments and lifetime authority, um, and they ultimately get to decide, at least the way it's con construed, they get to decide whether this law or that law is, quote, constitutional, which means is it congruent with the law of the land, a more fundamental law of the land? And that means you could construe it, you could, you could see that as, well, they are the ones who are making policy. They're the ones who are deciding what constitutionalism means. Is it, is it congruent with the Constitution? That's the way the, the system is set up. Um, that's why it's crucial that we have, um, first of all, citizens who understand that process of getting to on the court and and having an, a, a better culture, a more intellectual culture of people understanding what the job of the court is. And they, you know, if they continue to go down the path of, well, I was appointed by a Republican president, so I need to be loyal to those Republican, quote, traditional values – or I was report, I was you know uh, appointed by a liberal Democrat, so I need to be um, you know loyal to those you know government solution values. Um, then we're going to continue to go the wrong direction. Neither in neither one of those cases, and I'd say that is true today of the Supreme Court generally. In neither one of those cases are they looking at the proper principle, which is constitutional means preserving freedom. For individuals to thrive, to live their lives, to live their, to live, to be self-sovereign in a sense themselves, that they are self-governing, and that should be the guiding uh, overall principle, and that's what should that should be the standard upon which they make those decisions, and and in that sense, it's fine if they're 
the, you know, quote, decision maker on policy, as long as they're using that proper standard. That's how I would answer that question. What's your reaction to that, Mitch? No, I think I agree. I think Kagan's argument does get to the crux of maybe the more intellectual debate over saying, well, Congress and the Supreme Court, they don't know enough about the environment anyway. They don't know how to curb emissions. They don't know. They're not climate scientists. And now Kagan is saying the court has essentially taken away decision-making authority from the climate scientists. And Kagan is saying that doesn't seem right. And I agree with you, Mike, but I do think Kagan's argument probably gets to the crux of the intellectual debate yeah. around the role of the Supreme Court. Well, the, and not only the role of Supreme Court, but the role of uh, of experts, right? Yes. You know, d- d- you know, I'm not an expert on climate policy. I don't know what the heck goes on in a coal-fired power plant. I just want to turn my thermostat on and, and be warm in the you know winter and cold and cooler in the summer and 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 that kind of thing. And neither is my congressman. He's not an expert, and neither is the president, and neither is you know Justice Kagan or Roberts or whoever. And so you, there is a role for experts, and that is the, the the key is you know do we have a system that properly integrates that role for experts? And that's for a whole other podcast. I mean that this is actually a you know thousands of year old debate. Um, Plato used the you know the whole concept of the philosopher king, but much of America and our founding is against that idea. Plato's idea of the philosopher king. The whole idea of self-government is no. I can maybe I don't know what, what proper climate policy is, and maybe I don't know how a coal-fired power plant is, but I can make a decision. If you give me some, you know, going back to if you give me. Give me a little data. Give me a little bit of information. Uh, I can read Supreme Court decisions and I can read and I can make a, a, a rational decision about who's going to represent me in Congress. And by God, I need to be able to function for the purpose of my own life and my own happiness. And I can do that. I can be self-governed. Um, so there's that that tension between, okay, well, am I expert enough about all these different topics? Or no, do I ha- need to have some you know, paternalistic uh, gargantuan state that's going to be looking out for my, quote, for my interests. And on that, I think we, we probably ought to wrap it up. I know we're, we're going to be talking about some other uh, Supreme Court decisions here uh, in, in fairly shortly. And uh, I think this is really good to, to delve into um, because it's important. These decisions do impact uh, people's daily lives, their trading, you know, whether they can have their thermostat come on or not, or, or what happens to their uh, their source of uh, heating and air conditioning. Um, all these matter, and people need to be aware of it. And in that sense, we hope people will continue to listen to our podcast on defending and championing capitalism, the only moral socioeconomic system. And I'll look forward to having you uh, back soon, Mitch. All right. Thanks, Mike. 